Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Today's speaker is Robert Sykes, and he is talking about the strange death of Liberal England. Part A. It's a great title for a talk, I think. Uh, I didn't come up with it. It's a, a, a rather classic book. Strange Death of Liberal England, written by a man called George Dangerfield. And what I'm going to do in this talk is something I haven't done before, because I'm going to read out quite a lot of chunks from the book. So it's rather than me, it's Dangerfield's own words. You'll see why, I think, as I get going, because he writes in a pretty inimitable style, in some ways a dated style. What's it, it about? Well, that's the... Oh, yes, I also have a potential problem. This is the book that I bought 40-odd years ago, and the, the same cover there. And the, the spine of the book is broken. So as I read out chunks, if I drop it, I'm in serious trouble <laughs> in terms of the pages. <laughs> Yeah, what you've got in that cartoon is Asquith, the, the Liberal leader, uh, being literally torn in two. Rich radicalism on one side, socialism on the other side, and him in the middle. And the caption, which you probably had, can't read from the back, how I wish I'd never had anything to do with either of them. And it's about much more than politics, because it's about, in a sense, a spirit of the age changing. And it focuses quite narrowly on the period from 1910 to 1914 and the outbreak of World War I. So that's the period we're going to be looking at. I'm going to start with one of the books that has plagiarised the title, Strange Death of Tory England. You know, all know who that is in the John Major. Uh, and this is a book that was published in 2005, just after the third Labour victory in a row, and he's using the same title as Dangerfield to talk about it. And I'm going to read out a bit he says right in the preface, because I think that summarises better than I can, a, a big political change that happened back then. So he's writing in 2005, remember. A hundred years ago this winter, the Conservative government resigned and the Liberals called an immediate general election, which was a landslide victory for them and a rout for the Tories. It seemed a new dawn for the forces of progress, which was surely now unstoppable. Who would have guessed that within fewer than ten years, the last Liberal government would have passed from the scene and the party would never hold power again? and that the Tories would be in office for 32 years out of the first half of the 20th century. 60 years ago, 45, this summer, Labour won another historic landslide and the Tories suffered a, another rout. It was the high tide of socialism, and many people, Conservatives among them, assumed the state control and command economy with an irresistible wave of the future. Who would have guessed that the Tories would return to hold power for 35 years out of the second half of the century. 20 years ago, the new tide seemed to be sweeping all before it. The Tories had won two elections, and the Labour Party appeared to be on the point of collapse or even extinction. Who would have guessed 
that by the first decade of the 21st century, a Labour government would have been in office for eight years after winning not one, but three easy victories to crush the Tories. And by now, it would be the Tories who are seriously wondering whether they had any future or whether they must follow the Liberals into oblivion. Then a great sentence, I think. The great thing about history is that it keeps us on our toes. In 2005, we now know it was not an eclipse of the Conservative Party, but going back to 1906, it was the last stand of the Liberal Party, which had been, of course, alongside the Tories, you know, one of the two big parties of the 19th century. So that's one bit of context about it, about the political significance of that era. The second one is literary. In plays and books and, and on TV dramas, you often get a portrayal of an idyllic summer of 1914 and then the horror of the trenches. And it, it's, it's an obvious literary contrast. Dangerfield's thesis is this is wrong. It's not that the trenches were not awful, they certainly were, but that England wasn't at peace with itself in 1914. Also, context, he's writing in 1935. In 1935, you don't know stuff that happened after 35, which is an obvious point to make, but he was predicting the end of the Liberal Party before he knew about things like the 1945 Labour victory, which sort of sealed that. So he, he, he'd spotted some real trends. It, it also has an interesting little bit of context that if you're writing in 1935, if you were seeing who was the more significant in the history of the Conservative Party, you'd probably pick Father Randolph Churchill rather than son Winston Churchill. Not least because Winston Churchill had mostly in this period, entirely in 1910 to 1914, been in the Liberal Party. And finally, the, the reason for doing this talk is for me to indulge myself by rereading a book I really enjoyed 40 years ago. And it's quite interesting rereading it because he's, he's not a professional historian. It's a, very much a popular history. It's not all good. Uh, some bits of it are wordy, but it's at times a bit outrageous, at times certainly irreverent, wickedly funny in places, unfair but perceptive were a few of the things I wrote down. And a bit, some ways, like you could imagine history written by Private Eye or Richard Ingrams, you know, the, the sort of comments that you don't get from careful uh, academic historians. George Dangerfield himself was born in 1904. He was therefore only 10 at the end of the period he's writing about. He graduated from Oxford, moved to the US in 1930, age 26, and this book, Strange Death, was published in 1935. Originally in America, and it escaped notice, really, in England for quite a long time, but gradually grew in popularity and re repute. Dangerfield, interestingly, on Wikipedia, there is a page about him, uh, but no photograph, and I couldn't find a photograph about him, so you're not going to get one. He went on to become literary editor of Vanity Fair in 1933 to 35. He became a U.S. citizen and fought in the in infantry for the U.S. Army in the Second World War. Later won a Pulitzer Prize for history. The history in that case was early 19th century American history. The preface to the book, written by a guy called Paul Johnson, who I think is a commentator and historian, 
It sets the scene a little bit. This is Paul Johnson talking in the preface. This remarkable book was first recommended to me by my tutor, Mr. A.G.P. Taylor. That's Alan Taylor, who was a great popular historian himself. As an example of how, in the writing of history, vividness and readability need be no obstacle to truth. It was first published in 1935 and been out of print for many years. It's fathered a whole school of historical studies which have selected a short period or even a single year or episode to recreate the mood and flavour of the age. What is he writing about? He's writing, Dangerfield set himself the task of demolishing the myth that the 1914-18 war had destroyed the world which Asquith, as liberal leader, ruled and personified. On the contrary, he argued, liberal England in 1914 was a society in the process of decomposition. Its values and attitudes were already being pulverized under the impact of new social, political, and economic forces. England, on the eve of war, was in a state approaching revolution. Only our submission to a general European catastrophe averted a crisis of our national fortunes. Our parliamentary democracy itself was perhaps was saved in the mud of Flanders. A brilliant imagination and a vivid pen. So that's the rather bold hypothesis that England was in a, a, in a state of decomposition. And in that sense, almost the war resolved some things rather than caused them. And that's what the book's really about. The first section is called Their Lordships Die in the Dark. Uh, he, he was good with titles and subtitles, I think. And I'll explain what that means in, in due course. But basically, the starting point is the 1906 election, which was a liberal landslide. Liberals got 400 MPs, Conservatives 157, Irish Nationalists 83, and the new Labour Party 30. In those days, of course, all of Ireland was part of the United Kingdom. So that big number of Irish Nationalists, mostly from the South, part of the United Kingdom, and that features heavily in the story later on. Why did the Liberals win uh, so decisively in 1906? Well, Dangerfield has some comments on that. The Conservatives, this is Dangerfield's words, the Conservatives were drifting out of popularity like a swimmer caught in the undertow. Their prestige had suffered as the Boer War dragged on and England discovered how much blood it cost to run an empire, particularly when that blood was spent in the prolonged and frequently ludicrous pursuit of a number of undaunted D Dutch farmers. Boer Wars played a part, but more important actually was the issue of free trade and cheap bread against protectionism. New Liberal government, major reforms in that li Liberal government in 1906 to 1909, Start of old age pensions, start of national insurance, start of unemployment benefit, major, major reforms that have lived on. All of which led to Lloyd George needing the people's budget to be passed in 1909 to pay for it all and also to pay for rearmament, which was becoming an issue as Germany was beginning its naval race and so on. What Lloyd George proposed was relatively modest in mo modern eyes, but was revolutionary at the time because it involved this terrible idea that the rich should pay a bit more tax than they did. The House of Lords had a major conservative majority. 
So the Conservatives had lost in the Commons with the election, but they had a very big majority in the House of Lords. And, of course, in those days, it was all hereditary peers. There were no life peers. So this was all people who were there by dint of birth, not anything else. And the convention was that you didn't stop budgets, but the Conservative House of Lords did, and start of a, a bit of a crisis. And this, the theory was, when any, quote, Dangerfield, when any piece of hasty or foolish legislation was sent up to them from the Commons, the business of the Lords was to veto it, a course which, if it led to the government designation and new election, would give the people another chance to express their opinion at the polls. Yet, it was a curious thing that only about liberal laws was the country offered its right to second thoughts. Conservative bills went through the upper house unquestioned and unharmed. So there was no budget went through, and liberal legislation w was being blocked. And, and that is accurate in terms of assessment of, of the age. It was done with the approval of the then conservative leader, Arthur James Balfour, Dangerfield does these pen portraits of the major players in this, and they're unfair, as I said, but at times quite, quite witty. To the Conservative leader and ex-Prime Minister, Mr Arthur Balfour, politics was little more than a serious game. He played it with a faintly supercilious finesse, which belongs to a bachelor of breeding, and with a bitterly polite sarcasm, which was quite his own. He had entered Parliament originally from that mixture of duty and idleness which made an English politician of the old school. <laughs> In other words, he could neither fight, preach, nor plead. <laughs> In Westminster, being a member of the Cecil family, he was at least assured of a hearing. You see what I mean about an inimitable style and not f perhaps fair and not certainly the, the cautious sort of academic hi historian. At this time, more or less, a new liberal leader came about. Campbell Bannerman was the leader, taken over by Asquith. Dangerfield does a portrait of Asquith as well. He, he starts off by saying, few men are more gifted, and then goes on. Asquith, he was moderately imperialist, moderately progressive, moderately humorous, and being the most fastidious of liberal po politicians, only moderately evasive. <laughs> if he can be accused of excess, it was in the matter of his personal standards, which were extremely high. He had the sort of character which is so often found in the senior common rooms of Oxford and Cambridge. That is to say, he was almost completely lacking in imagination or enthusiasm. <laughs> Above all else, Mr Asquith was safe. Like the party he led, he had been swinging gently towards the right. People could assure themselves that no deep-laid radical schemes would ever be stirring behind the modest portals of Number 10 Downing Street. The two leaders. Now, there the was uh, a genuine outsider radical with star appeal in that Liberal government, David Lloyd George, who was then Chancellor. So what does Dangerfield think about Lloyd George? He was less a, a liberal than a Welshman on the loose. <laughs> he wanted the poor to inherit the earth, particularly if it was the earth of rich English landlords. And he wanted this with a sly, semi-educated passion which struck his parliamentary colleagues as being in very bad form. 
The Boer War first brought him into prominence. He had fought against it tooth and nail and became generally hated as a leading pro-Boer until that sad farce was over when he was suddenly recognized as a man of vision. Gentlemen of conservative tendencies, little humor, among whom one cannot feel were numbered in spirit, most of his political colleagues, used to grumble that he would make a poor companion on a tiger hunt. And he would. He would have been on the tiger's side. (laughs) House of Lords rejected the budget. The king died. In 1910, you have two elections close together. Both produced similar results. The Conservatives made substantial gains, but just the Liberals stayed as the largest single party in both cases, but also bolstered by the fact that there were now 40 Labour MPs, and the Labour MPs overwhelmingly just voted with the Liberals, and 80 Irish nationalists who also voted with the Liberals. So with Labour and Irish nationalists, it was quite a a big majority. Hence, you get this cartoon their Irish master, some people being led from by the nose. The the guy in front leading them is John Redmond, the Irish nationalist leader. Who are the other three? I bet you can get some of these. Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, who, of course, at this stage, was a leading member of the Liberal cabinet. The cartoon's a bit unfair, but then cartoons are supposed to be unfair, really, because... The Liberals weren't really in that position. The Irish Nationalists had nowhere else to go. It's pretty pointless voting down a Liberal government if what you'll get is a Tory government, which is totally opposed to what you want, which is home rule for Ireland. So actually it didn't quite work like that, but it's quite a witty cartoon. What do you do? You've had two elections in a year that have come up with the same result. House of Lords is blocking reform. The only way you can change the House of Lords is the King creates more hereditary peers. And the proposal was that the King should be asked to to propose another 500 peers. But there's no life peers. What do you do? There's There's a deadlock emerging there. So, again, Dangerfield, and I'll be careful not to drop it. Peerages were often bestowed upon the wrong men for the wrong reasons, but they were nonetheless rewards. They they were honours. You had to work your way through Parliament for them, or pay money for them, or write poetry for them. They were not to be had for nothing. Suddenly to ennoble some 500 obscure and undeserving men simply as a political measure was to turn the House of Lords into a vulgar joke. But you can't surely have a third election. So what happened is that Asquith got a vague assurance from the king that the king would be prepared to create more new peers to get the budget through. Dilemma for the Tory leadership. They don't want to do that, but on the other hand, if 500 new peers are created, any future Conservative government faces a massive majority against them in the House of Lords, and the House of Lords would be able to do to them what they'd been doing to the Liberals. That's where the quote about dying in the dark comes in. Because either the House of Lords steps aside and lets this through, or they try and see whether it's a bluff or not to create those new peers. The Conservative Lord Selborne finished the debate. The question is, shall we perish in the dark, slain by our own hand, or in the light, killed by our enemies? 
in the end, their lordships decided to die in the dark and the, the budget went through and also the Parliament Act went through which limited the power of the House of Lords. All but two bishops voted with the government and then there were fury on the Conservative side. We have been beaten by the bishops and the rats. But a Parliament Act is now law and what that means is House of Lords can only delay, it can't stop. And there's a consequence to that, which I'll come to in a sec. And the way it worked is you had to propose the same bill three times, and then something went through on the third occasion. So Dangerfield then deals with three rebellions, as he terms them, and he starts with the Tory rebellion, which isn't two words you normally put together, but anyway. The po big political consequence for the Parliament Act is that home rule for Ireland is going to happen. You've even got a time scale for it, because it three goes at a bill means it's going to happen sometime in 1914. And the House of Lords can no longer veto it, and it's going to happen because the, the Liberals are dependent on ni Irish nationalist votes anyway, but they've been committed to it anyway. How will the Conservative Part and Unionist Party react? Uh, at the time, by the way, Conservatives were often referred to as the Unionist Party rather than the Conservative. Dangerfield. Deprived of the Lord's veto, the Conservatives turned from Westminster and with cynical abandon started to beat the orange drum. Now, basically being on the side of the Ulster Protestants who were objecting to any form of home rule. I am here, of course, going with Dangerfield's thesis, I should urge. Uh, I'm, I'm well aware that some of the things he says are a little bit extreme. But broadly speaking, he does stick with the facts. It's the interpretation that, that people question sometimes. A new Conservative leader emerges, Bona Law. He's a, he's a compromise candidate. Uh, I think it's the only Prime Minister who's ever been born out of this country. He's can, Canadian. And anyway, we, we'll go to what Dangerfield says about the pen portrait. Uh, Andrew Bonalore, who contrived to hide a mild and retiring disposition behind appearance of rasping, uncomfortable self-consciousness. He was a Scotch-Canadian and a Presbyterian. His father had once occupied an Ulster manse. His face was sad, his forehead crumpled, he had an unfortunate habit of saying the wrong thing in debate. He was absolutely honest and he was excessively Tory in the matter of having no political imagination whatsoever. <laughs> when attacked my men more subtle in dialectics than himself, he generally took refuge in a remarkably unpleasing rudeness. The really dangerous thing about Andrew Bona Law was the fact that he was too close in spirit to Ulster's bigotry. And the Ulster Protestants began to organise, began to drill, and acquired a leader. Sir Edward Carson, a leader of the Protestants in Ireland. <laughs> An eminent politician after the event, by the way. Sir Edward was not vain, he was a fanatic. And he was particularly a fanatic on the question of the union between England and Ireland. He believed in the union, not simply as a man who believes in the union, not simply a man who believes in an effective constitutional system, but as a religious man might believe in the marriage between his parents, which, if annulled, would turn him into a bastard. <laughs> and he hated home rule, not merely as an Irishman, who, though Southern, was a Protestant and made a fat living at the English bar, but rather as a religious man might hate a moral evil. Home rule 
indeed, was so hateful to Sir Edward that he did not bother to inquire into its nature. Uh, he, interestingly, was uh, the QC who prosecuted Oscar Wilde in the famous trial. You might have come across him in, in, in that context. But what starts to happen in Ulster is the growth of volunteer forces, undoubtedly military aim, uh, military drilling, military discipline, preparing to resist home rule. There's an old slogan, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. Bona Law at a big meeting in Blenheim Palace, and then he repeated it in an open-air rally in Belfast, said, this is Andrew Bona Law, leader of the Conservative Party, quote, I can imagine no length of resistance to which Ulster can go in which I would not be prepared to support it, against the background of people beginning to arm and to drill. No length of resistance to which Ulster can go. Dangerfield says Asquith said it was an end to parliamentary government. And certainly in the South, nationalists began organising volunteer forces themselves. In Ulster, you now get the Solemn League and Covenant, which is a remarkable document. About half a million Ulster Protestants signed it, some in their own blood, literally. You are dealing with people here who fervently believe in their cause. Being convinced in our consciences that home rule will be disastrous to the material well-being of Ulster, we whose names are underwritten, men of Ulster, loyal subjects of His Grace of Majesty, King George V, humbly relying on the God whom our fathers lost us, in days of stress and trial comfortably trusted, do hereby pledge ourselves in solemn covenant throughout this t our time the threat to stand against the threatened calamity. Basically, it goes on to say it will use all means which may be found necessary to defeat the present conspiracy to set up a home rule parliament in Ireland. And in the event of such a parliament being forced upon us, we further solemnly and mutually pledge ourselves to refuse to recognize its authority. Be sure our confidence that God will defend the right we subscribe our names. Quite a remarkable document. Things are getting heated, you might have noticed. After this, as I said, about half a million Ulster Protestants signed it. And what effect it was, was promising to resist a genuine law passed properly by the Houses of Parliament. So it's quite a serious issue. In, in Parliament, there's all sorts of debate. Winston Churchill, in one of the uh, debates in Parliament... Pretty acrimonious debates, these were. Uh, Dangerfield describes this, and he starts with Bona Law. Bona Law remarked, Those people in the northeast of Ireland would prefer, I believe, to accept the government of a foreign country rather than submit to be governed by the honourable gentlemen below the gangway, i.e. the nationalists. Mr Churchill, who was then in the, in the Liberal cabinet, seized upon this passage, I refer, he said, to the statement that Ulster would rather be annexed to a foreign country. He could get no further. He waited for a lull in the opposition wrath. If you do not listen to me, he murmured sweetly, it's a matter of total indifference. Nobody was more conversant with the whole act of irritating opponents. He smiled, he shrugged his shoulders, he kept his feet. In a little while, he could make himself heard again. Ulster, he repeated would rather be annexed to a foreign country than continue her allegiance to the crown. While the opposition benches yelled at him, Mr. Churchill smiled upon them with the blandest and most calculated air of infuriating patience. 
At last he was given a third chance to speak. He threw his spear with exact and unscrupulous aim. This, then, is the latest Tory threat. Ulster will secede to Germany. <laughs> Churchill was always, whatever side, a, a, a superb parliamentary performer. There's, there's no doubt about that. Acrimonious debate, as I, uh, as I said, against a background already of fear of German rearmament. There's a whole series of books that got novels and things at the time about the German fleet going to invade. Do you remember Riddle of the Sands? Yeah, so that's, the, that's the, the, the atmosphere at the time. So saying they prefer to secede to Germany was quite an extreme thing to say. November 1913, Bonalore speaking in Dublin. The quote, I remember this, that King James had behind him the letter of the law, just as completely as Mr. Asquith has now. He made sure of it. He got the judges on his side by methods not dissimilar from those by which Mr. Asquith got, had a, has a majority in the House of Commons on his side. There is another point to which I would specifically refer. In order to carry out his despotic intention, the king had the largest army which had ever been seen in England. What happened? There was no civil war. Why? Because his own army refused to fight for him. This is Dangerfield's comment on this. A more extraordinary appeal to the army had never been made, it is safe to say, by any opposition leader. And when it was made, something died. That cr attitude of critical and grumbling respect for government, which had been fostered through over 200 years of revolution and reform, expired upon Mr. Bonalore's breath. And... Historically, he's correct, it did happen. So in 1914, when 1914 opened, Ireland was careering towards real crisis. Second rebellion, suffragette. Who's the cat? The cat represents the Liberal government. What's in the, the mouth of the cat? A suffragette. WSPU is the initials on the banner. Women's Social and Political Union. And it's a poster that came out after the passing of the so-called Cat and Mouse Act. It was nicknamed that. It was, it was actually called the Prisoners, bracket, Temporary Discharge for Ill Health Act of 1913. Popularly known as the Cat and Mouse Act. And the idea was that what the government was doing was something similar to a, a cat, a domestic cat, having caught a mouse, playing with it, letting it go and then grabbing it, letting it go, then grabbing it, and eventually killing it. Second rebellion was that of women. There were both peaceful and militant suffragette movements. Dangerfield says the militants were always a minority, but they were a very active mi minority. And they only really became militant from in about 1910, after the failure of previous agitation and Asquith being very lukewarm about whether he'd let any female suffrage through. There were m compromise proposals go f floating around about votes for some women, but nothing was actually done. So Mrs. Pankhurst, the leader of the WSPU, ramps up the pressure. And this is a quote from Mrs. Pankhurst. There is something which governments care for more than human life, and that is the security of property. And so it is through property that we shall strike the enemy. Be militant, each in your own way. Those of you who can express your militancy by going to the House of Commons and refusing to leave without satisfaction, do so. 
Those of you who can express militancy by facing party mobs at cabinet ministers' meetings, do so. Those of you who can break windows, break them. Those of you who can still further attack the secret idol of property, and that's a reference to arson of unoccupied buildings, so as to make the government realise that property is as greatly endangered by women's suffrage as it was by the Chartist of old, do so. And my last word to the government is, take me if you dare. This was ladies not acting as the ladies of the 19th century were supposed to act, put it mildly. And indeed, the suffragettes did smash rail windows, they chained themselves to railings, there were arson attacks on empty property, and when they were taken into prison, as a result of all this, what did they do? They went on hunger strike, showing force feeding, effectively, and the, the, the tube of liquid food goes up through the nostril and into the back of the, the throat. Those of you who think politics is a bit rough and tumble today, you need to pause and, and think a little bit. Perhaps it, the cat and mouse poster was a bit better than this one. Mrs. Pankhurst went on repeated hunger strikes, but effectively, in the space of about six months, she was arrested and then re-released and then released and then arrested again six times. And she was on repeated, if interrupted, hunger strikes. Liberal dilemma, what do you do? in this situation, because these people aren't giving up. Some MPs thought that the government was being too lenient in opposing the, the Cat and Mouse Act and so on. Traditional way of doing that is to uh, a parliamentary motion to reduce the salary of a, a minister who wasn't doing the job properly. Uh, Mr. Harold Smith formally moved the reduction of the Home Secretary's salary by £100 because of the incompetence, the lack of firmness, the humility which the government had displayed in its dealings with the suffragettes. Mr. McKenna, who was the Home Secretary, might have replied that getting food into a woman's lung is an act not without its element of firmness. But there's no denying the fact that the possibilities of catching pleurisy from the government had not deterred the militants from pursuing their campaign of outrage. What was to be done? Some members maintained that women should be left to die. Lord Robert Cecil thought that deportation might answer. Only Mr Keir Hardy suggested as a logical solution that women could be given the vote. <laughs> the government went on to ban the suffragette newspaper and take other actions. This produced this reaction, again quoting Dangerfield, about this action of banning a newspaper. The Manchester Guardian, whose opinions no Englishman and certainly no liberal could afford to disregard, declared that the law had no power to suppress newspapers in advance. And what else was Mr McKenna doing, if not that? Mr Bernard Shaw was more wounding still. The suffragettes have succeeded in driving the cabinet half mad, he wrote. Mr. McKenna should be examined at once by two doctors. He apparently believes himself to be the Tsar of Russia, a very common form of delusion. I'll finish this section with that. There, 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 there was a broad um, suffragette campaign. This is what all the bad things that a man can do and still have the vote and all the wonderful things women can do and not have the vote. There was a pretty powerful argument, but it was going nowhere and the violence was continuing. Third and final revolt 
was the workers' revolt. And in some ways, this is the weakest section of Dangerfield's book. He deals with a, a big increase in strike activity. This is uh, a, a photograph from London Docks strike. Huge strikes, big increase in trade union membership. Dangerfield um, details of events of these various strikes, including uh, the one in Tonipandi in South Wales, which you might have heard of, where Churchill ordered in the troops, and the troops with fixed bayonets got the strikers' thing. At the time, this was bitter atmosphere, really. It, the strike was started by a coal mine owner's lockout, by the way. It wasn't started by the workers. Uh, they were locked out for, to try and enforce a reduction of uh, wages. Dangerfield concludes this account of this big increase in strike activity and trade union membership with talk about the formation of a triple alliance. And that's not the triple alliance of Germany, Austria and, uh, and Italy in, in Europe, but of the miners, the railwaymen and the transport workers. And he talks about this as if it could lead to a general strike. He says, at the slightest excuse, the Triple Alliance was prepared to go into action and proclaim a general strike for nothing less than a national living wage. Now, the evidence is not there that the trade union leaders were planning this, but in identifying a real growth of class solidarity and class conflict, he was correct. It, demonstrably, it, it was. Just to give you an indication, trade union mem membership between 1906 and 1914 more or less doubled from 2.2 million to 4.2 million. Strike activity increased enormously. If you take the 1910 to 1914 period, the biggest number of strikes was in 1912, and 40.9 million days were lost. To give you a sense of what that means, many in this room, I think, will remember the early 1970s as a time of quite a lot of industrial conflict then. The highest strike record that year was 1972, 23 million, as opposed to 40 million in 1912, with a much bigger population. You get a sense of this. So, with Ireland going to disorder, with the government at a loss to do with suffragettes, with a big increase in industrial conflict, what was 1914 to bring? <laughs> the views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T podcast studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Mm -hmm.